This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Tomorrow is Holocaust Remembrance Day, but the question of how we choose to remember the Holocaust can be thorny and tied up with a lot of very raw feelings. For some, Schindler's List is masterful, for others, manipulative, and so on. Today on Fordham Conversations, we're talking about Holocaust remembrance with Fordham history professor Daron Benatar and his mother, Roma Benatar. They've written a book together about Roma's experiences growing up in Warsaw and during the war, and about Daron's experience as the child of a Holocaust survivor growing up in Israel. That book is called What Time and Sadness Spared, Mother and Son Confront the Holocaust. It's out now from the University of Virginia Press. Daron's also written a play about his mother's experience in the war. Behave Yourself Quietly will be performed on April 28th and 29th at the Little Theater in New Haven. I spoke with Daron and Roma about their experiences writing the book. I started out by asking Roma why she decided to do it in the first place. I think if it wouldn't have been for Daron, it would have never been a book. Because uh, I was very reluctant to, to write and to tell my story altogether. But uh, certain things converge because at the time when he started pressing me to to write down what I have experienced more or less, I felt already that certain things I'm forgetting, certain details, certain things that happened. And suddenly I had a feeling, you know, that maybe by putting down a little bit of what I've been through and giving them a picture of what my life was like before the war, maybe they'll find it easier to understand certain patterns of beha- of my behavior after they ha- they would know what I have been through. It was also very important to me in a sense that all those people that live in me will eventually die with me. And this was the only way I could really prove that they were, that they existed, that they are not a fiber of my imagination. Now, you said you were reluctant to write this at first, and it's kind of a it's kind of a complicated story how you actually came to set all this down. Can you tell me the story of how this book came to exist? I never intended to write a book. I never intended to write any memo- memoirs. I was just, I mean, I'm living through all those things again and again. Things are coming back. Everything is somehow in the background all the time. I can't really say what triggered it off, but I suddenly remembered a friend of mine, a boy of 16. I was myself 15 and a half or 16. He might have been 17, something like that. And it occurred to me all of a sudden, that of him there is absolutely nothing left because he was often from his father as he was a child, when he was still a child. His mother was killed quite at the beginning and he was an only child and he was killed in Auschwitz. Uh, Sorry, in Majdanek. And I thought to myself that here is a person that nobody even knows that he existed. And I felt compelled to write about the short relationship we had and the story how I met him and what has happened and how he had died. And it was just a short story. I have a habit of writing down all kinds of things. My children will find lots of 
papers that I have written during my life about all kinds of things. And among them, I wrote this, and my daughter came across it. And she said, Mommy, you write so beautifully, you should write down your memoirs. And I always was very much against it because I thought that so many stories have been told and that people are not really interested. People like to hear happy stories, good stories. And even so, in a way, my own story has a happy ending because I'm here. But it is not a happy ending because it is just a happy ending for me. And what about all the rest? And yet Doron came and started also putting pressure on me. And somehow I started spending my nights at the computer. And I wrote things just as they came to me. I mean, in no chronicle order, just as I felt, whatever came into my mind, whatever I remembered at that particular moment. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote, and before I turned about, there were about 200 pages of what I have written. My son got hold of it, and he said that he must put some order in it, and I mean, more or less chronological order. And he took it with him to the States, he translated it. He made out of it a book. Duron, what was that what was that like for you having a story that you felt should be told? You know, I, I don't know whether it should have been told or should be told. You know, it's kind of I wish that I had this knowledge. What I do know is that for me it was very compelling. It's 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 a, it's a narrative that um has been with me since I was born. And for much of my life, I have had a very great desire to somehow to understand, to comprehend, to, to get in touch, to to know what it felt like to... And, and I think that I'm not unusual in that respect, that many people who have parents who went through what my mother went through. And then um, when I took the manuscript, I... I had two options. I could just like read it and translate it to me, into English and make it so that it's available for me, or I could try to make a book out of it. And I made a book out of it the only way I know how, and that is sort of te- te- you know making it a history. I mean, I wrote this is my fourth book, so it's not. You know, I've written books before. None of them, of course, had, they're all academic books. Academic books, yes. I mean, it's not. None of them have the emotional meaning that this one have for me but I took it and and for about a year all that I did was work on this book I mean I I worked at night every night in my office it was hard it was hard for me to write it was hard for him to translate I sometimes find myself uh, reading I haven't read it I mean just this week when I came here to the States I think to myself, for God's sake, did I really went through all this? Did I really go through all this? And then I had the same reaction when I have seen myself on the screen when I gave a testimony. I couldn't believe it, that it's me that's talking. You begin to wonder, how did you do it? Well, that's, I mean, that's an interesting question for you to run as a historian, because a lot of what you do is to say, well, is this a good way to tell this story about what happened in the past? Is this a good way to tell this story? And you have some 
rather harsh things to say about Holocaust museums and about certain ways that the Holocaust has been memorialized. Could you talk about that and how you felt this story might be might be different? Well, you know, I have um, a very complicated emotional relationship with um, with commemoration. I don't know if I did better. I don't think that uh, I want to claim that. I think that I would rather not. But what happens with Holocaust museums is that they're very powerful. They take um, these horrible pictures that the Germans took as they were uh, doing their project, and they put it on walls. They, you know, in in some of the more powerful museums, like the Washington, the one in Washington D.C., or even the more one, the better, the better ones uh, in in Auschwitz and Majdanek in Poland or Yad Vashem in Israel, they have collections of shoes, of hair, of um, of other items, suitcases with names. All of this is in an attempt to invoke kind of uh, what happened, but they're all very quiet places, very sad places, and they're clean, and um, they they are museums. It's one of the strangest little facts of our time is the most, that the most visited museum in the United States today is the Holocaust Museum. And, you know, and, and, and one wonders what is the relationship between what is presented and the essence of being there. And in general, museums are alienating. People go to museums and they they are passive. They look at things and they see. And and this kind of commemoration, I think, is incomplete without individual narrations. And that's what I wanted to add: an individual narration to uh, to what I call the archaeology of the Holocaust. The archaeology of the Holocaust sort of brings back the things, brings back pictures and items but without the stories um, that the people bring with them, it's rather empty. I definitely agree with him. I only went through this experience once that I agreed to accompany a school, I mean, children age 17, 18, on a trip to Poland to the museums. And I could see how slowly a relationship between me and the children developed, how slowly they began to identify with me and what impact everything made on them because I was there. I was the connection. I was talking as a as a witness, as a living witness of what has happened. It wasn't a story by somebody. It wasn't something written down. Or so. it, was, it brought the thing, it made the thing alive. It brought it to life. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking today with Fordham professor Daron Benatar and his mother, Roma Benatar. Roma's a Holocaust survivor, and together they've written a book about that. Daron's also written a play about his mother's experience in the war. Behave Yourself Quietly will be performed on April 28th and 29th at the Little Theater in New Haven. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, as Daron Benatar pointed out, Holocaust museums have become some of the most popular tourist destinations in the world. 
A couple of years ago, while I was working at Michigan Radio in Ann Arbor, I had the opportunity to visit the Holocaust Museum that was the nation's first at a time when the museum's directors were rethinking the ways that they presented the Holocaust to visitors. That museum was the Holocaust Memorial Center in Michigan. Although it's not as famous as the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., the Michigan Museum actually opened in October of 1984, which was almost 10 years before the D.C. Museum. Since then, it's been a popular spot for school trips, and it was rated Michigan's number one tourist attraction by the Detroit News. In 2004, the museum was in the process of moving to a newly constructed building in Farmington Hills, Michigan. The museum's director, Rabbi Charles Rosenzweig, gave me a tour of the museum. We began with the museum's display about Jewish history and moved on to the events leading up to the Holocaust. Here you will have these panels, which are not yet done, will deal with anti-Semitism throughout history through the modern period. The reason why we do this is because we want to make sure that the people there you descend to the Holocaust, that the Holocaust didn't take place in a vacuum. There was a history of anti-Semitism that preceded it, that made it tolerable by so many people. As soon as the Nazis come to power, they pass a series of laws against the Jews. Their property is seized and they are gradually deprived of all their rights as German citizens. German children are taught that Jews are an inferior race. Jewish children are made to stand at the front as the teacher tells the rest of the class why Jews are inferior. You descend into the area of the Holocaust. You go on from the period of 33 on. And you made it an actual descent. Yeah. Why is that? Because the Holocaust represents a descent of human behavior. We stooped quite low. Quotas are set. Only a tiny number of school and university students can be Jewish. No single school can have more than 5% of Jewish students. This is representing the ghetto. As you can see, the barbed wires, the black, the lactin, the walls. And it's not finished yet, obviously, and you will have here all kinds of explanation from in a chronological order what transpired from the beginning of 1933 through 1944 and 45. This is the abyss that we are going through right now. The abyss represents what the um, what the um, Allied powers found when they entered the camps, when they liberated the camps. And here you have the report from Edward R. Morrow, in which he tells the American people that no events in human history ever witnessed horrors of that kind. Now our medical battalions work two days and nights binding wounds and giving medications. But for advanced cases of starvation and tuberculosis, there were often no cures. 1,200 civilians walked from the neighboring city of Weimar to begin a forced tour of the camp. There are many smiling faces, and according to observers, at first the Germans act as though this was something being staged for their benefit. This particular theater deals with the, recalls the survivors' recollection. People that were children during the Holocaust, that, that some of them survived in hiding, and they tell their story. Something wasn't right, but... Mr. Baker sent a soldier to the ghetto to round us up. 
Now, unlike the darkness that we witnessed here, here we entered a light period. These are the righteous people who often risk their welfare in order to save other human beings. Alone, we are nothing. Being with others, learning with and from others, gives our life force and binds us together in mutual unity. That's the end of the tours, usually. That's the ultimate lesson we want them to learn. Now, who did you have in mind when you designed this? We were thinking about young men and women, and even those who have already formed their way of life, to change it, to make a better world. It is especially significant in our days and age when we see so much violence, so much terrorism that... Um, permeates the almost the entire universe. Together we are strong. The challenge is to use our strength wisely. To destroy or to build, to exclude or to share, indifference or compassion, hate or love. We hope that visitors will walk away with the knowledge that we need to protect and defend our check and balance system, our democratic system our liberty, our individuality, in the sense that intolerance of diversity is the road to destruction. That was Rabbi Charles Rosenzweig of the Holocaust Memorial Center in Farmington Hills, Michigan. This is Fordham Conversations, and I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead on Cityscape, life at some of New York's most expensive addresses. That's Cityscape with George Bodarkey this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. Let's return now to our conversation with Roma and Daron Benatar. I'd been interested to see when I read the book that for Jerome, growing up with the memory of his mother's experience in the Holocaust was really not a big part of his life, especially as a teenager. I asked him about that. Yeah, I was ashamed of it. I was ashamed of my mother. Uh, she has an accent uh, in Hebrew. I have an accent in English. I know now that my kids are not fond of uh, the fact that I have an accent. And of course, I was ashamed of her accent. I was ashamed of her overprotectiveness. I was ashamed of the fact that she insisted that no food ever is tossed out. I mean, it was just. I was ashamed of 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 uh, of, of being different, and and there was this culture in Israel, particularly as I said after sixty seven, of macho-ness, of being that something the the kind of rough Israeli is a good guy. There's a culture of Holocaust jokes. If you're a child of a survivor, you can tell Holocaust jokes. It's one of my privileges. But there's an element here when you do it that you are kind of soothing the Holocaust for the listener, kind of telling him, don't take it too seriously. I took active part in that. I was a, as offensive as anybody could be um, as a teenager about about the Holocaust. It's not that it did not feel hollow. It felt hollow, but my desire to belong was so immense. In, in a way, I violated the memory of my mother's family members as a, as a teenager. In, 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 and um, I think you had to start on yourself. Because I remember when you were still in the Army, it was the first year that you were serving in the Army, and you were a counselor for Boy Scouts. And, and you came to me and you said that you want me to talk about the Holocaust to a group of youngsters because you're completely taking aback how little they know. And 
I remember you must have been 15 or 16 where I was taking a back seeing you reading The Rise and the Fall of the German Empire. I mean, you always life. read a lot, but you read a lot. I mean, this was a book that told a lot about this. So, I mean, you were interested and you were reading a lot of history and you came to me and I was reluctant to talk to these youngsters. Because I said, what shall I say? Mostly, most of them came from English-speaking countries. The parents had nothing to do with the Holocaust. They grew up in England, in America, and then they emigrated to Israel. And the children knew nothing about it. And you asked me to bring those seven, eight graders to our house that I should speak to them. Do you remember that? Yeah. He felt the need that the children should know. I mean, in a way... For him as well, I always felt that my story is somewhere, somehow very relevant. He was, he was always somehow around it. Maybe he didn't admit it even to himself, but it was always relevant to him. I guess I didn't. I mean, I guess I was not aware of it. I mean, I, I forgot that story altogether. About, you see? I mean, I, I, I don't remember uh, um, that. I remember... Maybe because I'm so embarrassed over it. I remember myself uh, making stupid jokes, offensive jokes about, you know, leaking gas. And, and Maybe because it gives you a guilt feeling. And, that, and that's a very hand, You don't remember how you tried to convey to the children what has happened and how be. important it was to you. I, I acknowledge that. I, I, I just, it, it's, it's quite striking that I don't remember that, but I do remember the feeling of, of shame over the, the jokes. I have to say, I, I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn, or, you know, will be surprised to learn, that there's this there was this sort of culture of shame about the Holocaust in Israel in mm. the in the 70s. There, there is and there was. There was. There isn't there anymore. There isn't anymore. Um, it's, it's very complicated. First of all, Zionist relationship with the Holocaust is very complicated. There is a, a charge that is not accurate but it has some validity to it that the Zionists didn't do anything to stop the killing, not that they could. There's a charge that they kind of, they saw what happened was happening in Europe only uh, through the prism of the project of getting a Jewish state in Palestine. There was this entire culture of a new Jew, which was about the Jew who doesn't run away, the Jew who fights back, which is very central to the image of Israel. For a boy growing up in that culture, um, it was very important to show that you are not going to be like those diaspora Jews who went like lambs to the slaughter. As my mother says, she hates this expression, but it's an expression that uh, we've heard so many times. It's absolutely unjustified. And because they don't know what they're talking about. Right. Nevertheless, that was the the idea. So that the attractive position was to be a strong, kind of rough on the edges Jew, not the one that is. Uh, uh, meek and, and, and is persecuted. And the Holocaust is a shameful experience in the sense that, you know, you're, you're, you were just stuffed into ovens and, and burnt. I mean, it's in a sense, there was a great sense of shame in, in associated with that. I don't know whether it was exactly shame. The Israelis, they felt themselves superior. They were heroes. They were fighting. And we were weaklings. And at that time, everything was concentrated on building the Jewish state and uh, dealing with the problems, and we had plenty of them. We were attacked from everywhere. And 
then came many like those people who were weak and sick and and problematic and the easiest way was just to disregard them not to deal with their problems um, as a matter of fact I tried not even to conceal my number for that because I didn't want people to ask me and then very quickly I started speaking Hebrew I went to the army and I just I just wanted to be like everybody else so you get married and you have Daron and ultimately you you grow up obviously and you move here and you have children right. but you decide that you're not going to share the story with them but it continually is popping up yes that 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 was the uh, a surprising ambush that that I did not expect it it started um, you know my children are growing up in the states when my son uh, was a, in fourth grade he developed a really bad case of paranoia. We're not sure exactly what triggered it, but um, he was totally out of control in the sense he couldn't be alone anywhere at any time. You know, we had to be with him at all moments, and, and if you if he left the room for a second, he would start screaming. And after a while, he disclosed to us that what he's tormenting him is, he called it the N-word, and the N-word mean, meant Nazis for him. Now, I did not understand how it all came about. I, You know, we never told him anything. He grew up in a sheltered American environment. Yes, I mean, he, he knew my family. Somehow, he picked on it. I, I don't know how. And then, um, and then it turns out that a few years later, I find out that my daughter has a repeated nightmare of being persecuted, pursued by Nazis. And then only recently did I discover that my youngest son has the same kind of thing. And I really never sat down and never told him and never sort of said anything except, yes, um, you know, yes, your family perished. I mean, I do light memorial candles a few times a year. I don't, there's no crowd. The candles are burning. I don't say, oh, come on, everybody, let's get together and talk about the Holocaust. I, I don't know why it lasts. I don't know why it has such a hold on me, on my family. I'm not a mystic. I don't believe that you know there's some something that goes through forces that are beyond me. I just don't understand how it works. Well, let me close with uh, just one more question. You both in this book are just incredibly honest about the way that you felt that you felt about everything and that you feel about everything now. Was that a conscious decision? Yes. To that, be honest? Yes, absolutely. It was incre- I'm honest. Well, you, you are perfect. Um, <laughs> no, I'm but, not perfect, but I No, I what I mean, we did actually, we did make a, not a conscious to be honest. I mean, on that there was no, uh, no, no question, but we made a, a, a conscious decision first to engage in no polemics, no hyperbole, right. no um, generalizations. Um, no generalizations about cultures. I mean, one of the things that my, you know, other uh, children who grew up in Holocaust in survivor's home, had different feelings. You know, I was never taught to hate Germans. To my parents, never made a big stink about buying German things and not buying German things. Um, my, um, we made a decision not to dramatize anything, not to sort of not not to make things, to tell it as simply as and directly as possible. To to admit our own shortcomings in the sense of you know that we're you know we're not sure sometimes in some places, 
uh, it was the credibility of the of the account depends on understating things on not generalizing and not playing up and I'm not claiming superior um uh, voice or superior position to other accounts or to other ways of telling I don't see any other way to talk about it but honestly I have to be straightforward about all those things I also sometimes people feel it all oh, what do they understand we we the survivors and I hate this you know because I mean I don't feel that we are in any way anything special we just happen to be lucky to survive and everybody deals with it differently I myself tried to escape for a long time to deal with it took me a very long time to face up to it but once I do I mean I try to tell it as truthfully as possible Well, uh, Daron Benatar and Roma Benatar, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Pleasure. That was Fordham history professor Daron Benatar and his mother, Roma Benatar. Their book, What Time and Sadness Spared, is out now from University of Virginia Press. Daron's also written a play about his mother's experience in the war. Behave Yourself Quietly will be performed on April 28th and 29th at the Little Theater in New Haven. If you missed part of the show today, or if you'd like to hear it again, Fordham Conversations is now available as a podcast at WFUV.org. Or you can listen to us in the archives also at our website. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.